April. So Fred Hayward, thank you for talking with me. Let's start at the very beginning. Where and when were you born? Oh, I was born in the Bronx. I'm a Bronx boy. 19, oh God, 1946. You really needed to know that, didn't you? <laughs> Grandfathers get to be born then. And what <laughs> month? I'm interested in your astrological sign. Oh, I'm a, well, I'm a moon child. Cancer. Yeah. yeah. Got Can it. And do you feel like a homebody who's sensitive and... <laughs> do I feel like a homebody? Um... Well, it's weird. Yeah, yes, I, lo I love being at home and I love traveling, though. I love traveling. I've been around the world and I, uh, my son lives in Italy. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been to Europe over a dozen times. I, I love traveling. Where's the most exotic or out-of-the-ordinary place you've been? Uh, the last trip was Antarctica. Um, it was uh, the, with my son. Um, he graduated, like, we'll have to backtrack, because I know you want to know the story about my son. KJ. And I, yeah. Um, and um, so he wanted to go to Antarctica as a graduation present, and and we went and just had a ball. It was, and I got, I'm really, I, I love animals. I don't know if that's a, a cancer thing. I, um, and so highlights of my life were swimming with manatees, swimming with dolphins, swimming with stingrays, and swimming with sharks. And now I got to walk with penguins. Mm. I've done all that except swim with manatee. I, the, they're the ones that are in Florida, right? They're like big Yeah, blubbery. they're very very gentle and just so yeah they, they were sweet I it was I think it was either in Mexico or some Caribbean island where I swam with them okay um, let's let's get to KJ later um, what about your edu education uh, career path highlights of that so we have your background okay um, I majored in math at Brandeis University. Um, and then probably around junior year, I, did, I realized I wanted to become a diplomat. Um, my father worked for the United Nations my whole life. And um, so I, I, always, I always did a lot of traveling and uh, was very interested in diplomacy. And so after Brandeis, I got my degree in math. And then I went to a graduate school a small graduate school in international relations. It's called the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. And it's just graduates, just international relations. I got a couple of masters there and then had one of the briefest diplomatic careers in American history. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your career? What were you doing? <laughs> I was in, uh, I was at the American Embassy in Bangkok and uh, it turns out I'm, I'm, I was nowhere near as diplomatic as I had thought I was. But um, I got along real, it was the Americans that I had trouble with. I got along great with the Thai people and all the other diplomats, but just the Americans that I worked with, um, it, it was a problem. Hmm. And so how have you made your money to pay for your food and board after that? After that, I became a math teacher 
fortunately I had that math degree. So I taught public school in math and got more and more interested in men's issues and um, finally I, I went to um, a national, what is it called, um, the Na National Conference on Men and Masculinity, which at the time, this was in 1976, and at the time that was really the only thing that was kind of what was called a men's movement. Um, so I went to that and I talked with the top people in, in that field, you know, supposedly the men's field, about, um, about men's issues that, you know, I, I just talked with them about some of my observations and theories and stuff. And um, I kept hearing things like, oh, I, I never thought of that before. And I'm thinking, you're the top people in this field, and you never even thought about the draft and low male life expectancy and, what, you know, like the whole bunch of issues. And, um, and I had a conversation, that was the first time I met Warren Farrell, who at the time was a feminist um, and um, a feminist icon, really, you know, a hero. And even though he hadn't thought about it either, he's the kind of person that um, is, is so open to things. You know, he's just, I know you're going to be interviewing him later. And... Uh, can't wait to see. He's, he's just this amazing guy. And so even though he had any connection really with what I was talking to him about, he, he said, um, what you have to say is valuable. You know, you should consider go talking. Um, and at the time, um, I couldn't find a I wanted a career that I was good at and I enjoyed. And there were all these things I was good at and all these other things I enjoyed, but they didn't really intersect. <laughs> um, I enjoy this, you know, and I'm really good at it because you're the top people. This is all new to you. And, um, and so Warren pretty much said, you know, figure out what you're good at and enjoy and do it. That's just call it your career and start doing it. And that's what I did. So I, I decided I wanted to get, a, I wanted to work within the men's rights movement, except there was no men's rights movement. So that meant I had to try to create a men's rights movement. And that's what I said about trying to create a movement. And what, what was that first organization? Was what well, Men's Rights Inc., National Coalition of Free Men, you, where you started those. What, tell us more about that. Okay, it was Men's Rights Incorporated, um, which I really had, I, I, I've always called myself an equalist, not a masculist, um, because I, I, I feel that if I, if I were a, a masculist, I would just be the flip side of what feminist is, and I felt they were wrong, so I would have the same wrong ideas, you know, I, I would start theorizing that women had all the power, and that... Um, just generate anger by men towards women the way feminism was generating anger by women and resentment towards men and and um and that that was that was the problem with feminism that that's um so um i forgot the question the, the question is how did you found those groups 
men's yeah, rights Inc. and National Coalition of Free Men. So I started men. I, I called it men's rights, um, not because men's rights was my only interest, although I wanted to raise awareness about it, but because the abbreviation for men's rights would be MR. It would be Mr. Inc. I wanted to be Mr. Inc. And to me, it was like a satire on Ms. Um, because I, I was saying Ms., you know, the creation of the title Ms. is just a perfect example of what feminism is doing that's wrong. It's, really? Feminism was this knee-jerk, if, if men have one title, we want one title. You know, whatever men have, it's better than what we have, and that's what we should want. Instead of what a, a real equalist movement should do, should be to say, okay, here's an obvious sex issue. You know, women have two, uh, two titles, men have one. Let's talk about why, let's talk about what's best for people, and let's go forward together with that. Um, instead of this knee-jerk, well, if men have it, it's better, let's do, you know. And um, because actually for men, it, because our our role is part of our role is to initiate relationships. It's actually very helpful for us to know whether a woman is married or not. You know, when you're meeting her, and um, for a job where it's not relevant whether she's married or not, a real equalist movement would be saying it's not relevant whether she's a woman or not. So why should the last thing we should be doing in a real equalist movement is creating a brand new title to differentiate between men and women? Um, so if it, it's like incorporating your race into your name. And when you apply for a name, for, for a job, they should automatically, as soon as they say your name, they should know whether you're black or white. That's the, that's the exact opposite of how to eliminate racism. And, and so it was just a satire on this. I, I think the Swedes, I know the Swedes have a pronoun that applies to men and women. It's, it's gender neutral pronoun instead of him or her. So they've, oh. they've done that. Um, so what was, when, you, when we think of men's rights, it, it's associated with father's rights after divorce and custody issues. What, was that the focus of Mr. Inc.? No. <laughs> um, let me just go back for a second because I just remembered you mentioned the National Coalition for Men. Um, and um, what I didn't know at the time was that at the time that I thought I was creating a new movement, it was that 400 miles to the south of me, near Baltimore, there was another guy who had the same ideas and wanted to create the same kind of movement. And he he formed the uh, the the coalition of free men. Was that Jack Cammer? No, no. This was way way before Jack. It was Richard Haddad, hmm. who um, unfortunately passed away um, not last year, the year before last. So I'm I'm the surviving founder. <laughs> but anyway, so we found out about each other and and just became lifelong friends. He's a, he's a wonderful person. And and the organizations were a little different. Men's rights is more activist, you know, having projects and free men was more a membership group. Um and and since they were a little different, I I founded the first chat Boston chapter. At the time I was living in Boston and I founded a chapter and I was president of uh, the Coalition of Free Men at the same time. 
that I was directing men's rights. So what other issues do men's rights, I think you, you worked on um, uh, yeah, you, women's nights out and social issues like that in bars? Yeah, you asked about um, whether father's rights was central. And, and at the time, um, when I, 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 I guess the issue, when, when I first started hearing about feminism, the issue that I was dealing with, this, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, um, was the draft. And, you know, so at the same time that my female peers were saying, you could do anything you want as a man, you know, and getting all angry and resentful. Um, and I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> I, you can do anything you want as a woman. The worst you if you don't want to raise children, you know, you, you'll have to deal with um, some inquisitive and, you know, nosy grandparents who's saying, when are you going to get married? You know, I want grandchildren. Um, but at the same exact time that you're complaining that I can do anything I want, my options were um, leave the country, leave my country, publicly declare I'm gay, go to jail, or join the army and kill people and maybe get killed. You know, those are my options. And if I didn't do it, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't I had to deal with um, society saying, well, you really should be getting married. You, know, you really should be a soldier. I had to I had to go to jail. You know, so it was really a very strict enforcement of very narrow options for me at the same time that they were looking at me and saying I could do anything, you know, and, and they were complaining. Um, so that w that was an issue you know, that I carried with with me into the movement. And, um, did you have to go to jail or were you a CO or how did, what did you do with the draft? Series of things that happened. Um, one was I became a diplomat, um, which that gave me a deferment. Um, and I, as I said, I worked in the American embassy in Bangkok in Thailand. And, um, if, if a restaurant management screws up, people won't like their meal. People will pan it on Yelp. You know, the restaurant might go out of business. Some wait staff is going to lose their jobs. You know, that's the extent. It's bad stuff that can happen, but that's the extent of it. But when the management of the State Department screws up, you get a war and people are dying. And that's, and it was the I was right there in Southeast Asia and the war was going on and I was watching my colleagues screwing up, mm -hmm. but screwing up. And um, so, and, and I couldn't, um, I was, I said, I'm not as diplomatic as I thought, you know, I, I just don't like lying, you know, and, and, and I, I would have to lie in order to represent my country the way I was supposed to be representing it. So, um, so once I, once I ended that career, I lost my deferment, you know, and then my, um, my option was to, um, to risk my life for this policy that I, I didn't even want to lie about. Now I have to die for it. Um, and so I started teaching math because there were two, um, two teachers that were 
deferred at the time. Math teachers, what do you, what do you think was the other one? Um, science? Nope. PE? <laughs> <laughs> That's closer. <laughs> um, uh, shop teachers, like metal shop, wood oh, shop. Yeah. And the reason for both of those is that there weren't enough women to make men disposable. Um, and so when I became a teacher, one of my jobs was to kind of take affirmative action for girls, getting them interested in math, which I wanted, you know, I wanted them to be interested. I didn't want them to feel that it's not their field. But at the same time, I had this feeling that what I'm doing is making the boys in this class disposable. You know, the more successful I am at um, encouraging the girls to become mathematicians, the more boys in my class who are going to die. And um, so, you know, like it, was, it was all a very troubling thing. And, and I just saw boys dealing with a lot of problems. And um, so I, when I went into the, when I decided to form this movement, um, I had I had a lot of it. I was looking at the broad picture. There was a father's rights movement, and that was active. That predated me. Not a men's rights movement, but a father's rights movement. But they were not looking at the big picture. You know, they didn't see the connection of all of these issues. They didn't see the male draft, for example, um, as symbolic, emblematic of how male life is expendable. And if you're expendable, your family doesn't need you, you know, and if your, if your family doesn't need you, then your children don't need you, then you lose custody, you know, like you can't, all of these issues were connected. So, um, but father's rights to me were, were just one of many issues, low, low male life expectancy, you know, I mean, like dying, <laughs> that's a pretty serious issue. There, uh, there were just, and, and as I said, as a teacher, I saw boys dealing with a lot of issues. I, I just saw so many things that to me were all connected. How has that evolved in terms of the decades, what Men's Rights Inc. has focused on and what you've achieved, what campaigns? Oh, well, um, well I, I, first I should say that um, men's rights lost their tax-exempt status, and so the organization doesn't exist anymore. Um, but um, some of the things we did, um, can I, let, let me go back for a moment and, and just say, talk for a little bit about um, two of the, what I felt were really important innovations in, in this field. Um, one of them was that f feminism, the, the feminism looks at men and women as basically opposites, basically competitors. And um, so if, if women don't have power, men do have power. If women are innocent, men are guilty. If women have disadvantages, men have advantages. Um, and if you help men, as the men's rights movement wanted to do, then you're hurting women. Men already have it too good. Um, and I, I said that's a fundamental flaw because that's a fundamental misunderstanding of the male-female relationship. 
We're not competitors, we're interdependent. And that changes everything. That means if women have a problem that creates problems for men, not advantages. Um, and if you don't help men, women will never get equality. Um, so some examples of this, um, like um, the, pay, the earnings gap between men and women. They were saying, you know, men earn more than women. This is a male advantage. And I'm saying, not really, um, because since we're interdependent and we're in relationships, we both consume at the same level. In fact, women actually consume at a higher level than men. Um, so by me making more money, it, that becomes, I, I get locked into my sex role of providing. Um, and so when children are born, um, somebody has to stay home and take care of them. And if society is saying that it makes financial sense for me to be the one to go out there because I can earn more money, I miss out on what, you know, this incredible experience. To me, it was the most rewarding experience of my life, raising my son. And then there's a 50-50 chance of getting divorced. Now I have to support two households and I have even less time with my children. So this isn't an advantage for me. And as a men's rights advocate, I want women to earn more money because that's in my interest. Even if women didn't want to earn more money, I want women to earn more money. Um, and Karen DeCrow, who was recently the president of the National Organization for Women at the time, because this was back in the early 70s, um, and she um she said, that's music to my ears hearing you, you know, say that. But most feminists, you know, just didn't get that. But the flip side is also true that um, for custody, she was saying, I don't understand why feminist organizations and they still unanimously, with no exception, all the major feminist organizations oppose real joint custody legislation. And she was saying, we should be jamming this down their throats. We shouldn't be, because women can never um, compete as equals on the job market as long as they had that extra burden of childcare. We need to share it, you know? And, and so when you look at men and women as interdependent, you get a whole different perspective on what policies should be, what should we should be advocating for, as well as a whole different emotional uh, makeup of a movement. Because instead of generating anger and resentment towards the other sex, we're generating you know, empathy and concern and, and a desire to help. Um, so that was one big thing to, to change that idea. Um, and an, another thing was say, when I said that um, every species has to survive, you know, to, to survive as a species, you, ha you have to produce and reproduce. You have to have food and protection and you have to have children. And um, those are equally important. You know, you can't, if, if, you, if you're not reproducing successfully or you're not producing successfully, you're not surviving as a species. They're equally important. And men, the traditional sex roles, sex division was that men 
dominated in the productive sphere in government and economics and uh, women dominated in the reproductive sphere. And that's where women's base of, you know, so we each had our different areas of power and different areas of responsibility. Um, and it wasn't a, a male conspiracy, you know, it was just this is how species survive. And, and we inherited all of these sex roles, you know, be, be, they predate humanity before be, the apes were doing the same thing, <laughs> you know, be, it's, it, we just never thought about it before. And, and I gave feminism credit for getting us to think about this for the first time. Um, but we needed to, um, we needed to look at that as, as a balance that just as women were looking at the male sphere of production and say, we want equal access to that. Um, men are looking at the reproductive sphere and saying, we want equal access and equal power there. So I thought those, those were two really important innovations that I brought. And, and then there were some social issues like ladies' nights and campus violence? Yeah. Um, I, I, w once I started on this road, you know, of looking at us as interdependent, and, and then I started seeing that we have, um, we have equivalent issues. You know, for every woman's issue, there's an equivalent men's issue. And, um, but feminism was was not just dominating but insisting on having the only voice on this so they were the ones defining these issues so they would say um you know our, our first priority is to free us from traditional sex roles and to say even if i'm a woman don't pressure me or force me to have children and raise them if that's not what i want to do and then they would look at men and say well men don't have to you know, have children. They're not pressured into having children and raising them, so men don't have any issue. And um, and I was saying, no, that's just because you define the issue in women's terms. But if you define it in people's terms, then um, we should really be saying instead of no one should have to have children, no one should have to carry out traditional sex roles if that's not what they want to do. Which means for women not raising children or not having children, but it means for men not being a provider, not being a protector, and not initiating relationships. We we need to share these roles. Um, so what? So there's the equivalent issue. Now the next thing for women was not only do we want the right to not carry out traditional sex roles, but we want the right to have to have equal access to carrying out non-traditional sex roles. We want to have equal job opportunities. Men already have opportunities you know, for careers. Men don't have any issue. And I would say, no, wait a second. That's just defining it in women's terms. Once you define it as equal access to non-traditional sex roles, then our issue is equal access to raising our children. And we don't, you know, society, has taken affirmative action to um, facilitate the flow of women into men's roles, you know, and uh, um, at the same time, society actually takes affirmative opposition to the men who are trying to raise children. We're, we're putting obstacles in their way instead of helping them. Um, so all of all of these issues and um, and and even uh, abortion that 
uh, well, men don't get, you know, get pregnant, so men don't have any issue. No, that's just the female side of it. But the issue really is, do you control your parental destiny? Once a child is conceived, can you say, well, I know a child was conceived, but I'm not prepared, I'm not mature enough, or I'm not established enough in my career, or whatever, um, you know, I want to finish graduate, whatever, don't force me to have these parental responsibilities. I want a way out. And that's what choice is. And men don't have that kind of choice at all. Um, and, and the ir irony is that um, it, in this, um, in a, a lawsuit that uh, Karen DeCrow was, was uh, this guy's um, attorney, and so she raised this issue because he was trying to defend himself against it, uh, a paternity suit where the woman literally tricked him into fathering a child. And feminists were saying things like, and this is a quote, you know, well, if, if he didn't want to be a parent, he shouldn't have had sex. Um, which isn't that really the heart of the pro-life movement? You know, <laughs> like if you say that to a woman, that's what pro-life people are saying to women. You know, well, if you don't want to be a parent, don't have sex. And, and women are saying, no, that's not a good enough option. So why is that, you know, why are men stuck with that? Why can't a man say, I know a child was conceived, but I can't afford this right now. You know, this was an accident or whatever. So every woman's issue had a men's issue. And, and I wanted to start raising awareness about all of these issues. So the first thing I did was ladies nights um, because I felt taking initiative in relationships was a very formative role for men um, and for women ha being hit on, you know, when they didn't want to be was is formative for women. And we need to share this um, because men become drinkers and liars, you know, trying to initiate. Women become defensive and, you know, we, we, we need to share this. So I wanted to raise awareness about it. And for some reason, I guess I had a knack for media and I thought, ladies nights, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, try to get this outlawed in Boston. I became known as the man who banned ladies nights. Yeah, ladies um, night means women get free drinks at bars. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, which means men, men are paying and not only paying for their drinks, but not even for women they're talking to, <laughs> you know, they don't even get that in return. Um, but, um, so I, I went to the Massachusetts commission against discrimination. And um, I started talking to them about this issue. And, you know, at first, like, it was being poo-pooed. And, and I, I said, suppose there's a, a bar, an inner city bar, that wanted to attract more affluent white suburbanites. And they started to have white Wednesdays. <laughs> where, yeah, you know, free, free drinks or whatever, cheap drinks. Um, how would you feel about that? You know, and they all like just, it just clicked and they immediately outlawed ladies nights. Um, so, so I became the man who outlawed ladies nights, which I knew that wasn't the major issue to me, ladies nights, but initi initiative and relationships. I knew I would get some attention and I did. I started getting, um, contacted by reporters, you know, and I would use this to talk about the role of initiating relationships and how damaging it is. Um, 
And um, then I started getting on, you know, a, a talk show producer would read the, the article and say, we should get this guy. And, um, and I started getting on talk shows and, um, and each time, you, you know, that like, a, they would, they would take an antagonistic approach kind of, and, and, um, think that I was going to be funny and stupid, you know, and at the end, like a, a, so many times, you know, they would go, wow, this is really interesting. You want to come back, you know, because sometimes I, I might be on like I remember I was on a, a magazine show where they put me on the last five minutes as kind of comic relief or something. And she said, can you come back and let's just, just do the whole hour on this? And um, another guy in, in a, a radio at a radio station offered me my own show on it. He said, this is fascinating. How long can you because we had just finished talking an hour. He said, how many hours can you do this? <laughs> Can keep going, you know, there's always issues to talk about. And he offered me my own show. Um, so um, it, then another thing I did was um, life insurance. Oh, no, uh, auto insurance came next. I wanted to challenge that by saying that... Boys have to pay, young men pay more premium. Yeah, and I was saying all your statistics have to do just by uh, gender, but it's not per miles driven, you know? And then I started doing like surveys and I showed them that men are doing overwhelmingly the bulk of driving. And you don't have statistics to show that per mile driven. So what if, what if there's a guy who wants, who shares driving in his relationship? Um, and they, uh, they equalize that too. Um, and then I did life insurance because uh, that, you know, again, um, that gave me access to give me another issue to talk about sex roles. And then I did life expectancy, uh, life insurance, which I felt that's a really important issue is life expectancy. And, it, and insurance companies had a very um, logical rationale for charging men more. Uh, men die earlier. And so they'll collect you know, before the average woman collects, the average woman will keep paying premiums before she corrects and, you know, and the, and the man, man is dead, he collects. So it made financial sense for them to charge more men more for life insurance, granted. But at the same time, the Supreme Court ruled that pension plans, which were charging women more, for the exact same reason, it's just the reverse, that um, a man is cheaper for a pension plan because he's going to die before he collects too much of that, and the woman is more expensive, and the Supreme Court ruled it's illegal to use um, gender, you know, sex-based actuarial tables for that. And I said, well, this is just the same issue. If it's illegal to use those tables right. for plan why isn't it illegal to use it for life insurance and you know so all of these things i just kept getting on more and more talk shows and talking about issues one after another what i read somewhere that oprah asked you to leave her show is that true yes yeah i got kicked off the first time i was on but you i mean you're so rational and amiable i what 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 what's what went wrong oh thank you for saying that gail uh, I, uh, well, again, they thought this guy's going to be an idiot. We'll make fun of him. 
Oh. You know, they didn't really do their research. He's a sexist. You know, anyone who criticizes feminism. Oh, a male chauvinist pig. I get it. Yeah. So she did her, you know, with a very common introduction, you know, but I just didn't accept it that day. Her, her, it was sort of like we, our next guest wants to talk about men's issues, and we all know men don't really have any issue, but he wants to talk about them anyway. Please welcome Fred Hayward. And, um, and I said to her, you know, at the, these statistics I'm about to give, you know, this was like, what, um, 40 years ago, so statistics are a little different, but it's still the same disparity. I, so I said, um, you know, blacks are eight times as likely to be incarcerated as the rest of the population. What, why do you think that is? So now her knee-jerk reaction was, I'm attacking blacks. This guy is not only a, a sexist, he's a racist. And she gave, so she's, you know, she gave the typical answer to that about blacks have more serious social and economic problems. There's legal discrimination. This is just a symptom of that. And I said, oh, okay. So blacks are eight times as likely to be incarcerated as the rest of the population. You're saying that's a symptom that they have serious problems. Men are 24 times as likely to be incarcerated as the rest of the population. So by your logic, doesn't that mean we, we have something to talk about today? And um, they cut commercial and the producer came to me. I'm sorry, this isn't going the way we planned. You have to leave. <laughs> So, you know, it was live and uh, I just got up and left. I was like in shock. Um, but I, I was on a, two, two more times after that and we, we got along better. But that's the story that you had heard. Oh, right. Um, what organizations in terms of these men's issues that are still problematic do you look to today? Who, who's cooking today? Oh, um, there, I see a lot more female involvement. It, it, we mentioned the fathers' rights movement before, and, and there are a, a lot of women involved with that because they're second wives or, you know, their, their boyfriend is what he's going through or um, just grandmothers who can't see their children, you know, because of what happened to their son, you know. So there are women involved in that. But as I said, the father's rights movement is just looking at this one narrow thing, which is really important. Of custody. Um, yeah, custody and child support and uh, paternity suits and alimony and, yeah, um, domestic violence, restraining orders, you know, the, there's a lot there. I don't mean to minimize it. It's huge. Um, but I was looking at everything else. And um, for the people who are now looking at everything else, there's a, a, a lot more women involved, a lot of younger women. And I, I, I love seeing that. These women are just blowing me away. Um, and um, one, one of them is the honey badgers, um, which is not really, I, I don't know if it's, and the, the people who founded it are in Canada. Uh, really good. Did you just write down honey badgers? <laughs> I'll, I'll give you some. 
people to contact. They're really good. Um, did you see the red pill? No, I, I don't know it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, can I, can I talk about that for a moment? Please talk about whatever you want. <laughs> All right. Um, a, a feminist documentary filmmaker decided to do an expose of the men's rights movement. Mm. And as a good feminist, she wanted, she, she thought what to say was true. And she wanted to expose us as, um, angry, stupid, uh, angry losers, you know, who resent the pro the progress women have made, um, and are whining about silly issues because men are privileged. Um, and so she started to, to do, started research, you know, and started interviewing people. I was the second person she interviewed, and, and we talked for an entire day. Hmm. And she kept saying, I can't help feeling there's something wrong with what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what it is, because it's all logical, you know? And, um, so after speaking, you know, spending a couple of years interviewing a lot of Warren is, is big in that film. Um, she realized that, um, that we're not, we're not angry losers, you know, we're intelligent people in loving relationships, um, who are totally supportive of equality for women. We don't resent that at all. And we're not whining about silly issues. We're talking about some things that are really important and important, not just for men, but important for women and, and children too. And we're not the bad guys. Um, that it's really feminism that's doing a disservice to society by squelching discussion of this, by trying to in, in, intimidate people and uh, at, out of allowing us to speak. Um, it's, it's a, it's a fantastic movie because she goes through her transition in the movie and she had the integrity, which very few people have to, um, to realize she was wrong, you know, and, and to totally put out a different movie from what she intended to do, knowing that she was going to lose her funding and lose her friends and, you know, which is essentially what Warren did. Um, when, when he went from feminist to equalist, he knew he was going to be losing a lot of friends and, and, you know, all of his big paying speeches and so on. So, um, it, it's a special kind of person who does that and he really should see that movie. When was uh, it produced? When, when, when did it come out? I'm going to say about three years ago. Okay. Um, it's Cassie J is the producer, C-A-S-S. I E and J A Y E Cassie J the Red Pill. Um, it's on YouTube. It was it was on it was, it was um, the most um, like a top seller on Amazon and the most streamed video at the time on YouTube's or YouTube and um, and Netflix wouldn't show it from feminist pressure. You know, so the same thing that she documents in her movie about how um, they are trying to censor and squelch discussion of men's issues, they tried to do that with her movie, too. Um, 
So you it's know, real. It, this makes me think of <clears throat> you and I were at a national organization of men against sexism nomos conference and it was a big furor because i said oh let fred speak and other people said no would you let phyllis schlafly speak at a feminist women's conference and i said sure i'd love to debate her do you when what do you remember where that was and when yeah and just before i get to that um Honey Badgers is how I got that on that sidetrack. I get I get on sidetracks a lot, and uh, you'll see in the red pill, and and you'll probably want to interview one so you can contact me again. Um, yeah, this was in Hartford, and that was a an annual conference that goes from city to city, and then each the, the local people organize the conference. Um, so. I was invited to be, when, when it was in Boston, and I was living in Boston, I was invited to be on a panel discussion at their annual conference, because the local people in Boston knew me. Um, and the panel discussion was called Dialogue Within the Men's Movement. So I was gonna be there to dialogue. And then when the national powers in the organization like Bob Brannan and um, Michael Kimmel, I guess. And, you know, the, I forgot the, the guy who's living with Andrea Dworkin. Oh, John right. Stoltenberg. Yeah. Um, all of these people threatened to, um, to scuttle the whole conference. Because of was, you? Yeah. And um, huh. so he was disinvited. This was to Hartford. No, this was this is in Boston. Oh, this is to Boston. Okay. Yeah. And um, so at the time, Warren was on that panel, and Warren didn't know me. You know, like I, I, I'm sure he didn't even remember the conversation he had with me that inspired me. You know, to get into this, um, and he was a good feminist at the time. But he said, this is crazy, <laughs> you know? So he put an empty chair on the, on, the table, on the stage and he said, Fred Haywood should be here, you know, for us to have a panel discussion on dialogue within the men's movement and to disinvite the person that we wanted to dialogue with is just crazy. And, uh, and when I found out that he did that, you know, I reached out to him and, and we've just been dear friends ever since. Um, so now, Moving on for a couple of years in the future from that, um, the people in Hartford organized a conference, and uh, I guess it was close enough to Boston. I guess some of them knew me, and I was invited there too. <clears throat> and then um, the powers, the national powers, found out about that, and uh, what they decided to do was they created this um, kind of loyalty oath or not really a loyalty oath but just an oath that you you had to in if you were to speak um you had to be three things you had to be um male feminist or feminist um male positive and gay affirmative um so i guess it was fem feminine yeah feminist male positive and gay affirmative and um, I said, okay, um, find 
and now my definition says feminism is the advocacy for women of the same political, social, and economic rights enjoyed by men. Find anything in any one of my speeches or writer writings where I'm against that. Uh, find anything where I'm against gay rights. Find any, you know, and certainly I, I shouldn't have to prove I'm um, male positive because <laughs> that's probably what bothers you. So in, in fact, um, I think you're the ones, you know, who would have more trouble filling, you know, satisfying your three, your three things, uh, your three requirements because of that male positive thing. But I won't raise an issue with that. But anyway, you can't keep me out because unless you find something. So I was allowed to come. And, um, and I was really warmly received. Um, I, I, I did the, I did a couple of, couple of workshops, I think. And, you know, and, and people were um, skeptical, you know, and they would raise things, but everything I just answered and, and they just, it was, it was like Cassie J, you know, saying, well, I, I know I'm supposed to find something wrong with this, but I can't. And, um, and, and they really liked me. And um, so it made the, 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 um, those people at the top were saying, oh my God, we, you know, we, we were calling him a Nazi before. And <laughs> he's actually, he's the devil, the way he's, conning these people into liking him and um you know and they were saying how homophobic i am and and they're at the dances you know like i'm dancing with all the gay men and nogging them and we're just having a ball and you know i was just disproving everything they were saying about me so they changed their uh those three requirements <laughs> and um when they took out male positive I don't remember what else they changed, but I was never invited back again. But I think they wouldn't let you speak because there was a big argument. I remember arguing with people, and as I said, some professor from New York said, you wouldn't let Phyllis Shafley speak. And I said, yes, I would. I think that's what's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember. I, I just remember I had, you know, maybe there was like a, a, a big panel discussion or something that, I was I really don't remember that, but yeah. I do remember that I had, um, you know, that they had workshops and, and, and things throughout the day and that my, mine, I had a couple and they were well attended and went really well. So they're still active, Nomas, and then there's the mythopoetic that do the weekend warriors in the woods, finding your male animus or whatever it is. Um, what, what, what are the different branches that you see that are happening today? Um, unfortunately there, there are some who want to go back to, you know, real traditional sex roles. Um, and who's that? Um, I don't know an organization, but they're just people who make you know, I'm on these different pages on Pro Facebook. Promise and, keepers or something like that. Um, yeah, they they were one, uh huh. Um, and there's different. You know, I started reading about the oath keepers at the Capitol on January 6th, and and that's different from the promise keepers. I I don't know anything about the oath keepers. Um, 
there there are people who define themselves, you know, and I don't think these are organizations. There are people who define themselves as MGTOW. As what? MGTOW, M-G-T-O-W. And it stands for men going their own way. And they are men who have pretty much um, sworn off relationships with women. Oh, those are those those men who, uh, I've forgotten what they're called, but they, they have trouble having sex with women, and they're, they're in Canada and around, and they're angry at women. Yeah, that, that's different. There's a, there is a lot of anger in, in both of those, but, but those are called incel. Oh, incel, that's right. Yeah, which is involuntarily celibacy. celibacy. Yeah. Um, and, um, but I, you know, I, I just don't see the same kind of organizations. I, I was just contacted by someone, who, a, a woman in Canada who wanted to start a new organization, something authentic, something men. Um, and she was asking for my advice and, and stuff. But um, and then there's the Honey Badgers. Um, What's their goal? They are. They, I wouldn't say they're traditional at all. Um, they seem to be uh, really just women who are saying pretty much what I've been saying. Um, but they have. But there, there, there is. There's. Most prominent person is Karen Strawn, S T R A U G H N, and she's got um, a lot of lot of videos. She's 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 really good, really funny, really trenchant. Um, but it's all women in Honey Badgers. Honey Badgers is is women, yeah. There's something called uh, there's an annual thing called the International Conference on Men's Issues, hmm. uh, and um, I spoke, the, the last one they physically had was in 2019, and uh, I spoke there. It was in Chicago, and, the, and that goes to different places. The next one was going to be Australia, but then the pandemic hit. So ever since then, um, it, it's been, you know, all digital meetings and stuff. But um, that was that was heartwarming to, to go to that, and, um, you know, like part of it is just to realize, you know, 40 years ago I had this vision and now there are thousands of people who are grateful to me, you know, for what I did and, and um, carrying on. And they're, they're like, I have so much respect for them. And, and uh, I just, it's very uplifting for me. The, the International Conference on Men's Issues, are they academics or who do they, who are the key organizers? What do you know about their leaders? I think it depends on the city because the one in Chicago, it was the Honey Badgers who organized it. Mm. And that, that was going to be the next year in, uh, in um, Australia was a different group. And then the one the next year was in going to be in London and it was it was a political party that was organizing it so it it kind of depends where it is but yeah there's a lot of acad academicians there um, and do they tend to be equalists rather than feminists oh definitely yeah yeah they're not feminist at all they're equalist 
Um, but some of, some of them are, are more traditional. And I could, um, to me, what feminism has done is knocked out the balance. You know, because we were into because women had their source of power and um, and responsibilities, and, and men had our source of power and our, our area of power and, and responsibility. Things were in balance, and and images in the media were in balance. You know, for every father's knows best. There was also a Ralph Cramden idiot, you know. You know, there were there there were positive and negative things said about men and women, positive and negative stereotypes, and things are in balance. And I don't, you know, I I never really did like traditional sex sex roles, and that, but at least it was in balance. And uh, what feminism has done is is knocked out the balance that we have that has maintained us as a species. So uh, they haven't eliminated, you know, sex stereotyping. They've, they've eliminated negative ones for women um, and, and doubled the negative ones for men, you know, so that there's still as, as much uh, stereotyping. It's just, it's just out of balance. Um, and, you, you know, you always have to show the woman is more intelligent. You always have to show her as winning, winning in, in uh, competitions and you... Um, well, there's still so many ads with women as sex objects selling tires or whatever it is. So you can't say they've knocked out stereotypes of women. No, um, but negative stereotypes, um, like you can't, you can't really get away with saying something like that. But they still use women as, as, as being beautiful. You know, that's our standard of beauty. And... Um, that's kind of, uh, there was another show I did where, um, oh, who's the guy? He was on um, PBS and he just had a talk show and, and I think, and he lost his talk show recently. There was a Me Too scandal. Can you think of? Oh, it's going to come to me later. Um, but anyway, I, I was on... I could just I could see him. Was it Koppel? No. Um, I feel like googling it. To <laughs> <laughs> you, I could just see him there. But um, so they had me on talking about um, male men's images in the media, and I said, "Do you want me to send you um, some, you know, clips and and?" advertising and stuff to show and they said no we, we we've got our own we have all the resources we need so I'm, I'm on the show and he would show one commercial after another um like a, a man and this is what made, made me think of it um women like looking at a man lasciviously you know and treating him like a sex object and um so he would say okay so tell me what's wrong with this and i would it was one thing after another where he would say, tell me what's wrong with this. And I kept saying, well, nothing. I, I kind of like that. You know, it's um, women were considered sex objects too much, but men were never considered sex objects. And what we need is, you know, is, is more balance. But there's a lot of advantages to feeling attractive and, and 
you know, getting that feedback that the other sex is attracted to you. Because as men, we don't get that. You know, our message is that the, the only time our body is attracted attractive is if it's encased in a Porsche, you know, or we have a lot uh, of money. Charlie uh, Rose, how's that? Yes, Charlie Rose. <laughs> but that, Fred, that's not true. There are oodles of ads of men in young men with uh, six-pack abs, no shirt, kind of shiny skin. There's right. a million of ads of sexy men. Right. This, this was, you know, maybe 30 years ago where there wasn't stuff like that. Um, and now it is more, and it's, it's um, not shown as liberation of men, but as liberation of women, that women, you know, could be allowed to ogle men. <laughs> Freedom to ogle, oh boy. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I want to address an issue that I've been thinking about, which is around the world, more women graduate from university except in sub-Saharan Africa. And um, they seem to be uh, going into professions, going to graduate school. What What's happening to men that they're not as likely to graduate from university now? Yeah, um, just be, before I get to that, um, in the advertising and in in humor, you know, it's still way like you, um, if someone is, is being hurt, you're not, whether it's emotionally or physically, you're very less like laugh if it's a woman, you know, so it's, it's, it's men who are the objects of that and, um, or rejection. Um, or they're or, shown as bumbling, you know, Bart Simpson kind of right. can't do things right. Right. And if there, if there's two, if, if they're in a, a, a man and a woman in a marriage or as, as parenting, you know, if one of them is more competent than the other, then it's going to be the woman. Um, so there's, there's a, a lot that needs to be done uh, because advertisers know about this, you know, like they know that if you show a woman doing what a man, the way they show men, that women will complain. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, before, I, I printed this out <laughs> because I wanted to talk about that too. I want to give you some of the, the statistics Okay, this is, it's, a, it's a chart that says for every 100 girls or women, there are this many boys or men. So for every 100 girls who take AP honor courses in art and music, 54 men. For every 100 uh, women who earn an associate's degree, there are 63 men. Uh, AP honor courses in foreign languages, 64 men to 100. Uh, enrolled in graduate school, 73 men for every 100 women. Um, with age 25 to 29 who have at least a master's degree, again, only 73 men to every 100 women. Um, enrolled in colleges, 77 men. And there's just... Um, <laughs> Where, what's your source if people want to look at that? Uh, this one is from AEI.org. Um, and I forget what that stands for. AEI.org. And then what you just Googled statistics, men education or what? 
Yeah, it, and and that, so these are the lower, but then and then there's the higher things of um, for um, ages like or who are homeless. Um, for every 100 women, 154 men diagnosed with communication disorders. For every 100 women, 168 men uh, who abuse drugs and alcohol. 180 men. Um, who are classified with a learning disability, 207 men for every 100 women wow. who die of opioid, op op opioid overdose, 212 men, um, and just, you know, suspended from school, 240 boys for every 100 women, and just, just um, who die of homicide, 648 men for every 100 women, you know, and yet violence is, is only shown as a woman's issue. Um, why is that? Why why are women ahead now in terms of education and professional training? Well, because we've been paying attention to it, you know, and, and working on it. Um, and at the same time, when people suggest, well, what about men? Feminists who have this power, you know, are saying, no, men already have it too good. You know, we can't. We can't waste resources on them. We need, there's still areas where women are below men. And as long as there are areas, doesn't matter how many areas they're ahead of men, but as long as there are any areas where they're below men, fo focus has to be on women. Um, so it's, uh, it's very, I felt when I was starting this movement that you need to pay attention to what I'm saying because. Um, we're creating a social time bomb. You know, our society cannot survive if we don't pay attention to this. And I, th I think we're seeing this. I'm, I'm very pessimistic about what's going on, and I'm, I'm pessimistic about. Um, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not. Um, I don't love the Democrat Party. <laughs> I. Um, I, I think they're politicians, you know, just like the Republican Party. And um, I, I think they're hip, hypocritical, like the Republican Party. I don't, I don't think they really care about children being separated from their parents. You at know, it's just something to make, a, to, to tug at our hearts, you know, to attack Trump. And we see, you know, all these children there. It's no, it's no better now. But if they were really concerned about what happens to children when they're separated from parents, they would support joint custody, you know, instead of applauding a, a, a system that tears millions of children from their fathers um, without, without caring what it does to them. Um, I don't think they really care about immigrants. They care about votes. If if uh, if if those immigrants were likely to vote Republican, they'd want to close the borders. And Republicans would say, you know, <laughs> they're all like that. They're just politicians. They have their own um, their own demographic that they their own special interests. And because Democrats, one of their special interests is is feminists. I'm thinking things are going to get much worse in the next four years for boys and for men. So if you were in charge, what would you do to encourage boys to go to college and graduate and you men, young men to graduate and go well, to I, grad school? 
Um, a, a first thing would be to um, to start some commissions, you know, to make this official, to have commissions on the status of men the way we have it for women and uh, a White House counsel for boys and men the way we have it for women. Um, we need to um, equalize, equal, like if, if I'm a boy looking at marriage, you know, it it could look pretty bad, you know, when I see what happened to my dad, uh, who's most likely divorced, and, and they see what happened to him. Um, in school, they, they get discriminated against, they get discouraged. What do you mean they get discriminated um, against in school? Well, one of the big things now is, is um, sexual harassment, where uh, President Obama put out this letter threatening loss of federal funding unless you put in the following reforms to deal with sexual assault on campus and basically saying that um, if, if a boy is cons uh, accused of something that he really won't have due process. It's her word against his and we'll just go with her word. Um, and so what Betsy DeVos did, who was Trump's Secretary of Education, she introduced um, due process for someone who's accused, and um, and Biden wants to undo that. Um, so the, you see boys getting kicked out of school. There's so many, and, and, and um, well, at least I see it, you know, because I'm, I'm tuned into these news sources, but the media doesn't cover what's really happening to boys. Um, speaking of boys, let, let's talk about your boy, KJ, who's now not a boy anymore. What you, you said that you were tricked into being a dad. What was that about? Oh yeah. Um, well, I, I mentioned that case before, um, and it, it was the Serpico case, which was a movie. Uh, I mean, not the case, but Ser Serpico was, um, a movie was made about him. He was a New York City cop, an undercover cop, who exposed police corruption. And because he was exposing dirty cops, um, they set him up at the end of the movie, he gets shot and retires from the police force. But what he exposed led to something called the Knapp um, investigation, Knapp commission in New York City, and it started dealing. So he did, he did a, a lot of good. Um, before he got shot. And then a woman decided she wanted to become a single mother and tricked him into fathering a child. So it's really interesting because a lot of people are familiar with the movie. And then when you tell them that even though the court, she told her friend she was going to do it. So the court accepted it. They testified and the court said, yes, you were tricked into fathering this child. Um, and they still awarded her over 90% of his police pension. Hmm. So if you see him go through in the movie, then you tell him, you know, what happened, the appendix, <laughs> you know. But does tricked mean she says, oh, I'm on birth control, no problem? Yeah. Um, so I wrote an article for Playboy about this, and my girlfriend at the time was trying to get me to have a child with her. And I was saying, not until you deal with this anger problem. Um, cause you have a terrible temper and you lose, you know, I, I don't want our child to be a weapon. You need counseling. 
And so, but she used to proofread my articles and she read that one and told her friend that she's going to trick me into fathering a child. So that's how I found out too late. You know, her, her friend confessed after, after she saw what was happening, um, but it was too late. And um, so then, she, so she had the child and, and she said, um, I don't remember her exact words, but it was along the lines of, don't, you know, don't forget I've read all your articles and I've seen your talk shows and I know all the things a woman can do to a man. And unless you're in a relationship with me where you could see the child what you want and we're a family, um, you could forget you have a child because I know all the things a woman can do and I'll do them. Um, so everything that I lived, that I was raising awareness about for the previous 17 years, I then was rolled up into one thing for me to live through. Um, so it was really rough. And, and one, of the, one of the problems was his name where she chose for him the one name that when we were talking about names, it was the one name I, I said, no, I definitely don't want that one. Um, it, brought, it, it brought back a, a very unhappy childhood memory for me. Um, and so that's what she named him. And I, I just couldn't believe that, you know, the courts couldn't do anything about that. I, I was saying, you know, I'm Jewish. I lost half my family to, to the Holocaust. Are you telling me if she names him Adolf Hitler that um, there's nothing I could do about that? You know, and, and so I, I got legislation to be passed so that they could do something about it. And the judge was all set to change his name. And um, and then she told him, uh, if if you change your name, I'll never be able to rest happily in heaven and just manipulated him into, you know, not, not having his name changed. Um, she manipulated the judge? No, she manipulated my son. Oh. Um, now, just before that, she, what, what the judge was going to do, um, I kept saying, you know, let, let's just have a compromise, you know, keep Ian as his middle name, but let's just choose something that I could be more comfortable for his first name. And, and the courts were just so helpless, you know, in the face of a woman's power on this. And my son, at the age of five or six, showed more wisdom than the court, you know, and he came up with his own name. He said, I want to be Jack. And, and that's what the judge was going to change his name to. The judge said, I like Jack. That's a good man, you know, name and was all set to do it. So anyway, I still call him Jack. And, um, and I did tell him, you know, after a couple of years, I said, honey, I'll call you whatever you want. You know, I know it's confusing for you to have two names and, whatever you want. I'm okay with it. And he said, no, I want to still be Jack. So, um, what kind of custody arrangement did you have? Well, initially I couldn't see him at all. Um, and, uh, then I gradually, um, got more and more time and I, f I thought that it was just such a sexist system. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. Cause I know you wanted to talk about the Sacramento show, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and that, cause that was one of the topics, but, um, I, um, I got more and more time and 
Then by the time he was eight months old, actually, I had more of his waking time. She had more total time because he slept there every night. But I had more of his waking time because she was at work. And I finally, you know, it's, an, it's not only an uphill battle for a father to get time, or at least an unwed father, um, to get time away from the mother, but it's even an uphill battle to get time away from any female. So she was paying other women to take care of him during the day. Um, and that's, that's what was so uh, sexist, you know, that they didn't, they didn't see. Like, they would say, no, it's too traumatic, you know, he's, um, for you to suddenly have him all day, five days a week, um, at the age of three months. He's not, hasn't seen you for three months. And, I, and I'd say, okay, but a total stranger is now taking him for, you know, who didn't know him the first three months either. Why is that? You know, it just was so senseless and they didn't see the sexism. But anyway, um, so that, that was the way it was until school. Um, and then we ended up with, uh, pretty much equal time. And that's uh, because she agreed to it, not because the court mandated it. She didn't agree to one second of my time with him. The so court, it was court mandated. So you had joint physical and legal custody. Yeah, everything I got was court mandated. Um, and even when I had more time with him and more of the expenses, and she had more, uh, she had an income, and I didn't. Um, I still had to pay her child support, even though I had the expenses of the time. But um, yeah, so so that's the way it was like through school. Um, and um, it wasn't a week here and a week there. It was like three days here and four days there and three days, you know, like it was all mixed up. And I actually had a little more, you know, probably averaged out to more four of the days to her three of the days. But it was pretty close to equal. And did she um, do parental uh, alienation bad-mouthing you or was she good about not doing that to him? Oh, no, she was terrible. I, I, you know, I saw her pick him up once and, and just look him right in the eye and say, Daddy is a terrible man. Daddy is a very, very bad man. And, um, and she would do, like, while he was there, if, if there were other kids, she would tell them, stay away from that man. You know, he's, he's very dangerous. And, and stay, you know, and my son would be watching this and listening to this and he would come to me and say mommy said that god's on her side mommy <laughs> said um don't need fathers you know like and i'd have to try to answer all of this but it was just if if i had done half of what she did i would have been put in prison actually um and um but the stuff that she got away with was just it it just Every day for 14 years, my body finally gave out, um, and I just got sicker and sicker, and uh, didn't know what was wrong. Um, but then after a while, I realized it's just the stress, just what she's my my body gave out from what she's doing every day, and they're not stopping her. And the only way to survive is to, to give up custody. And that was a two-year process of getting sicker and realizing why and going through the legal process of, of giving up custody. Um, 
And during those two years, my girlfriend, who had three grown children, and I had a really good relationship with them, during those two years, they started reproducing. And so by the end of the, you know, on, on the day that I was, I finally had no legal custody, you know, walked out of the court with, no, with nothing, I also had four little grandchildren who adore me, you know, and, and it was like, I, I don't know where I stand on religion, but it was really like God saying, you know, this is, you did everything you could for your son, you know, more than most men would be able to do. And he's off on a good path now. And, um, and here's your reward for little children who are going to adore you mm. and play with them without worrying about, you know, what if they skin their knee? Am I going to have to deal with child protective services? You know, their parents are not trying to put you in jail. Their parents, you know, it's just, um, so, but I didn't see him for like eight years after that. Um, he didn't, I would run into him from time to time and, um, we'd always have a good time and he'd always say, well, let's get together. And then his mom would figure out a way to get him angry with me again and it would never happen. Um, but then after eight years, um, he was in college and, um, I moved in with my girl. Well, my, my girlfriend and I bought a house and, um, and he had always maintained a, a good relationship with her. And he said he wanted to see the house. And she said, well, your dad will probably be there. And I said, okay. And we had a great time. And um, we invited him for dinner, to come back for dinner that night. And um, so his mom didn't have time to get him angry again. <laughs> he came back for dinner. And we've just been so close ever since. We're just, we talk every day. And um, so that trip that, that I mentioned, he's, he, he um, lives in Italy. Why? Um, he always from from the age of three when I had a Mac Plus. Do you remember what those are with like this eight inch black and white screen? Um, and it had a draw pro Mac draw program, and he would draw houses. And he he decided he wanted to be an architect right through childhood and high school, and got into the architecture program at Cal Poly. Excellent. Yeah, it's a good good school. It's a five-year program, and they want fourth-year students to do to find something off campus to do. So he went to Florence, Italy, to study architecture, and realized he loves Italy. Um, he doesn't love architecture. Oh, his passion is cars. So he got his degree in architecture, and then applied to design school in Milan, the design capital, and and um, to study car design. Oh. And he's been in Italy ever since. And he so has he, kids. No, uh, no. My grandchildren are the are through my girlfriend's kids. I've been their favorite grand grandpa since day one for them. Did and, Did your son ever come to grips with what his mom did? I would have to say no. Oh. Uh, he doesn't really want to know those details. Um, his I, th I think he's a, he's afraid that it would damage his relationship with her. He still, you know, he loves her a lot. And um, I think it might change the relationship a bit, but um, I think it would, he, he'll always love her. You know, he'll, he'll always have that connection. Um, and 
I think it would free him from some of the things, some of the things that he's dealing with now, if he came to grips with it. I think it would free him because he's, he's dealing with some issues that I think are related to that. Um, but anyway, um, so he got his degree in his master's in car design in uh, 2019 in December. And that's, so I went, I went to Italy and we spent time there. And that's when I said, where, where do you want to go to celebrate? And he said, Antarctica. <laughs> so we spent two months together all, you know, all together and just had a ball. Oh, that's great. That it's a happy ending. Yeah. Um, I'm also working on a book about how to have a happy long-term relationship. So what would you say, based on your experience with your girlfriend and her grandchildren, what, what, what are the most important principles to keep in mind to make a relationship satisfying over time? Um, okay. <laughs> I Remember I told you I, I get sidetracked very easily? Snail trail, my girlfriend calls it. Um, I just noticed there's screen share at the bottom. Can I show you a picture of my son? Please. All right. Um, because he, um, in, um, in the movie, The Red Pill, that ends with us being separated. You know, we, we got reunited after that. So let me see. You know, I think I have to make you host or something um, for you to screen share. Oh, do I? Um, let me think. Well, I'll just quick, click screen share and see what happens. Takes yeah, oh, try it. Uh, open. You should be able to just click on share screen. Huh. Um, I see like a... Rainbow. Yeah, I just took that off. I don't know how to do it. Okay. Screen. Oh, switch screen, maybe. No. Switch screen. No. I don't know why that rainbow is there. Well, it's pretty. Well, it was pretty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, relationships. It. Come, can you come back? Yeah. Oh, uh, you mean to talk about relationships? No, I mean, can you get rid of the rainbow and you be you again? Would you still have the rainbow? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't see it anymore. Uh, stop sharing. Okay. Am I back? Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you and my picture was still up in the corner. Um, so I'm sorry about that. No, it's fine. But, Thanks for trying. You can, you can email a picture. I'll email it. Yeah, I just wish everybody could, could see him because we're great. Um, and anyway, the problem with my girlfriend was that she had a lot of things that were reminiscent of my son's mom. Um, all physical was a big thing and and then other things you know they're both the same ethnic background both the same um, middle child and very large families you know as opposed to where I grew up it was just everybody had 
fat two kids, you know, in a backyard. Um, and uh, both both from the same area up up near Reading. Um, both the, just a whole bunch of things, and some um, some were good. Like we never we didn't really argue. You know, the sex was great. Um, but I was afraid because the, those good things with my son's mom, the moment she moved in, they disappeared. You know, all of a sudden there, there was no sex and she argued all the time. And, you know, so I, I didn't I didn't want to risk that. But the big thing was the physical similarity. Um, and it was just staring me in the face, you know, and I, and I just um, I had all kinds of problems with that. I, I had uh, like people I, I worried about, oh, I guess you never really got over your son's mom and that's why you want the same <laughs> thing again, you know, like all just all kinds of things were on my mind. And um, so at first the relationship was really just sexual, you know, and, and, and it was great. And uh, she gradually became my best friend. So now I'm having sex with my best friend, you know, so I was, I was pretty happy with that. I was still hoping to fall in love with someone, you know, and, and I, I loved her, you know, but I, I didn't feel like I was in love with her. Um, and, uh, and she had fallen in love with me almost immediately. Um, who, who could blame her right now? <laughs> Uh, and she waited. She was so, I was with her for over 11 years before one day I said to myself, how, how could I not be in love with her? You know, she's just, she's just so wonderful. But I, I was, I, until then I had kind of accommodated to, I'm just going to spend the rest of my life, you know, having sex with my best friend. I've got, I'm totally wrapped up with the, the grandchildren and her, you know, um, but now I'm, after 11 and a half years, I fell in love with her. We've been together for over 20 now. Um, so that's, you know, like our, it's not, it's a unique relationship. So I don't know what kind of advice I could give you, but, um, the, we laugh a lot together. Um, we're still working on issues. Um, but we, we really love each other. Um, and we're fair. Um, I really don't know what advice I, I would have to, you know, I think if someone came to me with problems in their relationship, you know, I could probably think of, um, well, this is what I might suggest you do. This is what we do or something, but just to give generic advice, well, what about, you said you're still working on things. How does one work on things? Well, um, what I was going to say is my, my parents were deeply in love for 75 years. So um, that was a lot to live up to. Yeah. And that's, that's why I stayed with my son's mom for so long, because um, it was really, she was really abusive. And, um, but I didn't want to... They, they, my parents said, you know, you just have to stick through the bad times. That's the secret. And um, but later, when they found out what the bad times were, they would have said, "Oh, you should have broken up with her." We didn't mean that. <laughs> Not abuse. 
<laughs> uh, we're working through. Th oh, okay, I'll give I'll give you an example. Um, she's very defensive. She gets. I never know what's going to set her off. I could say, you know, I could say something that she'll laugh at, and then another time I could say the same thing, and she'll get really upset and really defensive. And um, and it's it's very. It finally reached the point where um, I. I I, I don't know if I could take this anymore. You know, I, I, I said, it's, it's giving me, I mean, I know I, I want to be with you the rest of my life, but um, it, it became really big. And then that night um, I started thinking that this is from my perspective, you know, the, the, um, the burden that I have of being with someone who is defensive like that, I'm feeling sorry for myself but God, what must it be like for her to go through life feeling so defensive? And I just, it, it just changed my whole attitude um, to where I feel like, you know, when, when that happens, I just need to, to shower her with love and, and, and reinforcement, you know, and instead of, no, I didn't. I didn't mean it by that, you know. And then I get defensive and try to defend myself. No, you're misinterpreting it. To to just reassure her. Um, a lot of times, I think in relationships um, with my son. When I when I lost my son, when I lost custody, and I was just so depressed. Um, and every everything in my house, every place I went, would remind me of some something with him. And I was just so sad all the time. And um, then I, I, at some point I had the realization of, wait a second, these are good memories that I have of him. She can take my son from me, but she can't take those memories. I'm not going to, you know, I can't stop her from taking my son, but I can stop her from taking those memories. And I just enjoyed it, you know, like it just changed everything. And, um, boy, the more you can do that, the, which is, which is basically, you know, what, what I was saying about men's and women's issues, that when you look at it from just a different way, we're not competitors, we're interdependent. It changes everything. So I don't know what to tell you. Um, an issue that some people have is how to keep sexual interest, romance alive after decades together. You have any suggestions for how to keep romance sparkly oh pornography no. <laughs> <laughs> oh um, like watching videos together <laughs> no um, no we don't do that we um i we she used to say, I'm in my 70s now, but but through my 60s, she would say, you really put the sex in sexagenarian. Um, <laughs> we, we have a really good sexual relationship. Um, and we... Um, <laughs> I... She's probably going to listen to this at some point, <laughs> and my son too. I, I don't know <laughs> if I can answer that on your podcast, but um, but I, I do want to tell people that um, 
it, it, it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm in my 70s and don't think that your sex life is going to be over. <laughs> it doesn't have to end. And um, I have a better time with him, with her, you know, than um, she, then I, I was a real slut, Gail. Um, and I had a lot of sex with a lot of women, you know, just gorgeous women, you know, all, all kinds of women. And um, the best sex side I ever have is, is with her, you know, and it continues. Like I can continue even now enjoying last night in bed by coincidence, you know, more than um, any single experience with anybody else. Well, because you love each other and maybe you have this a little bit of tension with her defensiveness stuff. Oh, uh, no, that's not that's not there. Um, you know, as long as it's legal now, uh, I, marijuana can help people. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> uh, we, there's just stuff about her. Oh, God. Gail, I can't talk about this publicly. I'm really sorry. Okay. <laughs> All right, then don't think about her. Think about you're with a couple talking to them who've been together for 40 years, and they're just bored as heck with their sex life, and they just don't have the oomph. Um, we, wow, we've never, we've never gone through a phase like that. Um, Speaking of the Sacramento show, <laughs> segue out of this. Is there, when you, come, come to Sacramento, or I'll come to Chico. Um, but um, the, what, what should we talk about? The men, the men's show. That's great. Sacramento show. Okay. So the question uh, is, how long did you do the show for, and how did themes change over time? Um, well, the, I did it for at least two years, because I, I won a couple of awards. You know, they have annual awards. Um, and um, let's see. It changed. What one way it changed is that it started out more like a like an Oprah format, you know, where um, with guests. Or yeah, guest and audience, and I would talk to them for a while. Uh, maybe I, I would have like a short opening monologue kind of, and I would talk to them for a while, and then the audience, you know, they'd go around with a. Someone would have a microphone and they'd ask questions. Um, and I started doing more and more solo shows because um, there was so much I wanted to say. And plus I, I went through, you know, probably 30 topics or something um, with guests. And I just felt there's, I, I started accumulating stories during the week and just commenting on it and showing, you know, showing illustrations and stuff. And um, 
So it became more, who would do that? I, I, don't, I don't know, a, a talk show. Well, I guess Rush Limbaugh talked a lot, you know, but he would still take call-ins. I don't, I don't know. Um, but um, that was that was for me the most fun. Where I, where I, I I enjoy the the other thing, you know, the ha- being the host, being the MC. But then I started just really enjoying talking. And just, what were what were themes over those two years that were on your mind and other people's minds that that you wanted to talk about? What were the themes? Um, let's see. Um, I chose on, um, oh, I did one on, on mediation, family court services. And I was going to say that because um, I, I thought of that earlier when we were talking about my mediation. And um, that in my situation, she kept our son from me for three months until the court finally said I could have time with him. And um, But the court also said because he hasn't, had a relationship with you for three months, we want to gradually introduce you to this child and go through a period of gradual increments of increased time, spread out over a year, and by the end of the year, you can share time with her, with with your son. And what was frustrating, which I alluded to earlier, was that during that year, she would change, you know, she, she had childcare <laughs> providers that she would change, you know, and they would step in with no time, no, what happened to their incremental buildup, you know, like, I'm, yeah. why do I have to pay someone to do what I could do? Um, so I had um, the, uh, I had a family court service mediator on one show. And I said to her, you know, and she was denying that there's sexism and, and that, and, and um, I said to her, okay, imagine you're on a bus and you strike up a conversation with a woman sitting next to you. And it turns out that she gave birth three months ago, but had birth complications. So she's been in the hospital for three months recovering and she's on her way home right now and she cannot wait to see her child and take care of him. Is there even a molecule in your body that would want to say to her, oh, I don't think you should do that. I think we should go through a year of gradual incremental buildup before you actually take care of this child. Um, And I feel so strongly about it. I'm willing to go to court to stop you from doing that. And and she's, no, there's, I wouldn't feel that at all. You know, so how, how do you justify this? Um, So, one, one was me, uh, mediation. I had um, someone from the women's shelter, and we talked about domestic violence because the, the research has been consistent for 40 years now that women initiate domestic violence as often as men. And we talked about the battered women's syndrome. You know, why was it so important to name it after women? So some of our guests would be kind of antagonistic, you know, and, and it was really good having them on. Um, but we, uh, we had, we had a show on circumcision we had a show on black men. We had a show on gay men. 
Um, we had a, a urologist, the head of the urology department at, at uh, UC Davis, and we talked about men's health issues. Uh, I had a stripper on, and we talked about that. We had uh, I had a world champion boxer on. We talked about violence in boxing and boxing, and men. We had uh, a judge in child support enforcement. Um, we did stuff on uh, women's and the men's rights movement, uh, my media watch where I would, I would show ads and stuff, parent alienation syndrome. Uh, I had attorneys, I had judges, uh, we talked about, I had a show on sexual harassment. Um, so there, you know, just a lot of things. Um, what, are, what are you hearing now in terms of young men's issues? What are they? talking about, or are they talking about gender roles? Um, just kind of resentment I hear from a lot of men and um, still trying to laugh it off, you know. Um, more and more men, I think, are confronting it as a serious issue rather than taking it like a man. Resentment um, that what? About what? Everything, really, um, wherever they see discrimination against them, um, violence and divorce and custody and uh, the way women treat them. I, I think I've heard it most in terms of affirmative action. They feel like women get favored in access <clears throat> to jobs or whatever <clears throat> through affirmative action. I, I've... Um, it's funny, in the last couple of days, I've, I've told a couple of people <laughs> for the first time that um, I had published some articles on um, with, with using a, a female alias, female pen name, um, because there's also there's something that we call the... the lace pink, curtain. The pink curtain. Pink curtain. Yeah. Or lace yeah. curtain. Or lace curtain, yeah. Lace, lace curtain is good. <laughs> um, and um, so a couple of times I sent articles in to some publications and they would be rejected. And then um, I, I would send the same article back a little bit later with a woman's name and they would buy it and print it. Wow. Uh, and one of them was on affirmative action. And what I said, the, the, the brunt of the article was that raising children is a legitimate occupation. It's a legitimate career. Women who, who spend their time raising children, you, we don't call them deadbeats. We say that they're doing work. They're doing important work. Do you grant that? Yes. Um, there's a clear historical written pattern of discrimination against men in this field. The law literally would say that mothers get custody. Um, do, you, do you accept that? Well, yeah, it's right, it's in black and white. This pattern of discrimination continues today. Women overwhelmingly get the majority of, of custody awards. Is that you, still true even in California where it's the, it's the preferred mode is joint custody? Well, joint legal custody is different from physical, you know, equal time kind of thing. Um, so they would agree to that. And so you, ha you have the three 
necessary conditions to justify affirmative action. You have a legitimate field of work, you have a historical pattern of discrimination against one group, and you have a statistical pattern that continues today. Are you willing to take affirmative action to increase the number of men getting custody? Are you willing to tell judges they have a target of awarding custody to men 50% of the time? Are you willing to tell them it's not good enough to say, well, not, you know, most men don't ask for custody. You have to recruit them. It's not good enough to say they're not applying for the job. Are you, are you willing to say to the state, you have to teach skills to, to fathers? It's not, it's not good enough to say there aren't enough qualified applicants. You have, to, you have to set up programs to teach them, and you have to maybe lower your standards. Um, are you willing to do that? And most people say no, but that's, that was the gist of the, art, of the article, that if, you know, here's a test to see whether you really are in favor of the principles behind affirmative action or whether you just want to discriminate against white men and, you know, this this is a, a fancy euphemistic way of, of doing that. Mm. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. What I I think what I hear from young men is they don't want to give their life to making money, and they want access to their family life. Yeah. They they don't want to be the man who comes home late and is tired and doesn't have any juice for his family. I'm glad you said that because you're actually, you know, at Chico, <laughs> you're you're more in touch with young people than I am. But um, yes, that's a, that's a big thing that I that I hear and that I see that men are much more hands-on with their with their kids and enjoying it. Yeah, it used to be that if you saw a man with a young child in the park, you'd think, oh, it's so nice he's babysitting for his wife, or you'd think, oh, he's some kind of deviant. And right. now you just think, of course, the dad's Hopefully. with his kids. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, so are you, you said you're a pessimist, but are you really a pessimist in terms of moving towards equality, in terms of men and women's roles? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I'm a pessimist because... Um, I, I am not to, not just a pessimist about this, you know, where, where I wonder, have we already undermined so much of our society that we're now on that road down? Um, and, and as I said, um, having a Democrat administration now makes me much more pessimist. And, and when I see talk about packing the court, you know, and, um, and passing laws that, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I really, um, I think people, I think, I think we've lost the media as, as a news, as journalists. Um, I, I think when Trump was elected in 2016, that the news media should have said, Boy, did we blow this. We are really out of touch with the American people, and we need to change and get more in touch with the American people. Um, and 
and they didn't. They squandered that opportunity and, and did the reverse. They said, the American people are not in touch with us. We need to be more advocates and um, get them to think more like us. And we, and we lost objective news reporting. Um, it just, it became, um, to me, it was so obvious, you know, the, the way they would, um, they, they would package stories. It, it was just, it was just so obvious. So um, I'm, I'm worried about that with now um, a, a Democrat media, Democrat um, social media, you know, Democrat news media, Democrat social media that is deplatforming conservative voices, movements in in academia that are getting rid of, of professors if they dare to be conservative, um, and um, you know, control over the House, control over the Senate, control over the executive, plans to pack the court um, to control that. Uh, admitting Washington D.C. so that to secure control over the Senate, and um, and and voting laws, you know, poo-pooing the idea of fraud and and saying that ID, voter IDs discriminate against um, minorities and poor people. People have IDs, you know, like in, in Mexico they. In, in India, peasants who earn two dollars a week, you know, have have IDs, and so the Georgia legislation, you know, as, as soon as I see this, I'm, I'm going, wait a second, you're just packing. When you call that the voter suppression law because of voter IDs, you're packaging it, and people are going to repeat this without really thinking about. Things like okay, so now we're we're moving the All Star Game. The, you know, the, the All Star Game has been moved out of Georgia as a protest, and we're going to move it somewhere else because we want to. You know, we don't want to discriminate against poor and minorities who can't afford IDs. So what are you going to do with that game? Well, we'll sell alcohol. Well, who can buy it? Well, people with IDs. <laughs> are we not discriminating? You know, what about? Don't those laws discriminate like? Poor and, and minorities can't drive because they can't afford ID. They can't drink. You know, we don't we don't go there because that's not part of your narrative. This is a narrative, and I I don't think the um, the issue. I think because of the pandemic, we really screwed up the voting system, and people don't have confidence in it anymore, and um, and they want to make that permanent. You know, even even after the pandemic. And I, so I'm really worried. I, the bottom line is I'm pessimistic about this country with that. We're not, not just the sexism, but that we're heading towards a one party state, which I wouldn't want a one party Republican state either. God knows that, but I'm just pessimistic about the way people are being manipulated without questioning what's going on. What do you think is the legacy of Trump in terms of um, popular views of masculinity and femininity? Oh, um, I don't know if he has a legacy um, in, in those terms. I think the, the thing I most loved about him um, was that he 
did not stand for political correctness. Um, I, th I think that, that was, you know, there was his, his God, the list is long. He's a bully, he's insensitive, he's vindictive, he's barely articulate, he's a jerk. He's, you know, there's all kinds of negative things I can say about him. But there are some positive things. And, and to me, that was a big one, that he was willing to stand up and say, I don't, you know, I don't care what I'm supposed to say. This is how I feel. So it's okay to say I can grab women's genitals if I want to because I'm famous. So that's politically incorrect, so it's okay? It's not okay to do it, but depending on the context of the conversation that you're joking around with people, you know, with, with, um, with Barbara, we say stuff together that we go, oh my God, you know, if, if, if I was a president or something, you know, this would... I would lose my job as a professor or anything when we make these jokes. Um, so I don't, I don't know the context of that. I, I do know that I've heard men brag about things that I know they didn't do. Um, so I, I don't know. You know that, that I, I would definitely say it's not okay to do that. But to just say it, I, it depends on the context. Hmm. Um, okay. Last question. There's men. I believe strongly in freedom of humor. Uh, there's just uh, such a difference between what you do and, and what you say. And um, we, I, I think controlling people's... Um, I, I, have, I have a friend, you know, it, it's, it's... Well, I think the cancel culture is, is, is part of that. You know, I, I worked with a guy whose 40-year career was just ended in one day, on one tweet. Um, someone asked him, do you believe in Black Lives Matter? And he, he said, I believe all lives matter, every one of them. Lost his job, lost his 40-year career. Um, because all lives matter is a supposedly associated with white supremacy. But, you know, all lives matter is the, is the central tenet of every religion we respect. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And you want to associate it with white supremacy? I don't think a white supremacist would say that. They would say white lives matter, you know, or all lives matter, but some more than others. But how could you fire someone for saying I believe all lives matter. I don't get it. And you know, there's just there's so much of that where, where people just don't think and they go along with this and they get intimidated and I think it's bad enough when and most people I think believe that. So it's bad enough when a minority feels like you can't speak your you know, your honest feelings or opinions for fear that somebody's gonna take offense. But it's even worse when the majority of people feel like they can't say what's really on their mind. Because I think the majority of people are thinking, this is bullshit. Oh, sorry. Can I say that? I guess. Yeah, sure. Politi you, political correctness is BS. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. There's men's studies in academic programs. There's men's studies journals. There's multiple ones. 
do you keep up with men's studies, men's journals? What what are they focusing on? Um, I support them. I I don't. I haven't. I'm a very slow reader, so I don't read as much as I could. I just barely get through the day's e emails. I get hundreds of emails a day, literally. Um, but I, I taught, I think, the first men's studies program. Um, Where course. was that? It was at Tufts University. In a, in a, um, and I think it was the first course ever on, on men's issues. Wow. When, do you remember what year it was? Probably uh, maybe 1979, something like that. Um, and it was a it was a great class. I I did um, I I did a lot of things. I was lucky, kind of. I, I did a lot of things for the wrong reasons that turned out to be good. <laughs> like like I, I I started that course because I was thinking, um, you know, I want to create a body of literature now. I want a, a move. You know, I want to start this movement. And there's a lot of research that has to be done. I can't do it myself. I'll teach a course and assign it. So, so I'll have 30 researchers, you know, and, um, it was, I got a lot of good stuff out of it, but what I didn't realize was that now, you know, teaching at a university that adds to my credibility. And when I started Men's Rights Incorporated, I was thinking, um, I, I can get grants, you know, I wanted a nonprofit corporation to get grants and I couldn't get any grants. You know, even the Playboy Foundation was totally feminist that there, it was written that they will not fund anything for men's issues, only for women. Um, but now I'm the, you know, the director of a, a, a corporation that added to my credibility. So I kept adding to my credibility accidentally. Um, but I don't, I don't know, you know, I, I know, there are people in, it's a burgeoning field, but all, there's also a lot of controversy because feminists in, in power don't want to see men's issues. Um, and so um, Michael Kimmel, like they, they a, a lot of the men's studies programs are really run by feminists and they're not really men's studies, you know, they're just, um, and Michael Kimmel was supposed to be the, the, I, oh, I forget. I forgot the details. I don't even know if he's working anymore because he had there was accusations. He's retired. He's yeah. There were accusations about sexual harassment from him. So, um, but he was supposed to direct a men's studies program that, um, maybe it's the first one. I don't. I don't know. Are there are there men's studies programs like departments in universities? I don't or just, think there's departments, but there's definitely courses. Courses. And, I think maybe it was that he was supposed to direct the first department, but I I don't know. It's, it was in the red pill, I think. So when you watch it, you'll see that. Okay. Anything else that um, you want to make sure we think about in terms of men's women's roles? Um, no, I'm going to think of about 10 things as soon as we stop, but right now, no. <laughs> okay, and then you can add them to your written chapter. So 